As of June 4, 2020, Yukon has seen only 11 confirmed cases of COVID-19, all recovered, and no deaths. This wasn't just luck. All three territories responded fast and hard once it was clear the virus had established in Canada. With scarce medical infrastructure, isolated communities, and a significant portion of their economy relying on workers or travelers coming from elsewhere, Yukon faced a unique challenge when it comes to dealing with the outbreak. This episode's guest had an early personal scare with the virus. Yukon Deputy Premier Ranj Pillay talks to us about how his close call in early March influenced the territory's response, its economic prospects for the future, and the entrepreneurial spirit of Yukoners and First Nations communities. I hope you enjoy this episode of Bright Future. It's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast the Honourable Ranj Pillay. Minister Pillay is a man of many titles. He's the Deputy Premier, Government of Yukon. He's the Minister of Energy, Mines and Resources. He is the Minister of Economic Development and the Minister Responsible for the Yukon Development Corporation and the Yukon Energy Corporation. Minister Pillay is a trusted decision maker, tireless community advocate, and a man with strong connections to the businesses, people, and First Nations shaping the future of the Yukon. Minister Pillai, welcome to Bright Future. Thanks for having me. Rand, you had a really personal experience with COVID-19 at an international conference early in March. If you could talk to us a little bit about your experience with that scare and how it's helped to shape your response to the virus since then. Yeah, it was, you know, it was really early on in the Canadian experience having this particular situation occur. I was at the large mining conference in Toronto in early March and came back from that conference. Canada was starting to grapple with the pandemic at that point. It was still early days and had been informed that somebody was at the conference and tested positive. So I had to go into quarantine and my family had to go into quarantine very quickly. It was one of those early days where we ran over and the kids were pulled out of school and you know, life stopped as we knew it at that moment. Went through um, about almost 10 days uh, quarantine and then had our tests come back and luckily it was, they were negative. But I think it did help shape my view of what was going to play out. And it also gave me an opportunity to understand what other people were going through because shortly after that, people were going through the same experience as though for many of us, it would seem very easy to spend a couple of days at home you quickly learn that the way we live, there's different pressure. So it was a chance to feel that anxiety, a little bit of fear, and then understand what other people were going through. Absolutely, it's helped my perspective on this. If you could talk to us about how Yukon has responded to the pandemic, and particularly, it's important to understand the Yukon Business Relief Program, how it's really been created to address a territorial reality as it relates to your economy, and the businesses within it. The process of trying to come up with a series of strategies to help in a situation like this, you know, very unique in that there's no blueprint, which we knew. And we felt that it was, we had to be aggressive. And that's really the way we've approached it. We knew that there was going to be tremendous risk involved with that decision making because the public policy tools just didn't exist. And so out of the gates, yeah, as you touched on the business relief program, you know, perhaps our most significant program, and it's for business owners. And really, it's, it's been probably the key to securing our economy. So businesses that have experienced a 30% reduction in their revenue during the pandemic qualify for this. And the government of Yukon 
really what we've done is we've gone out and covered all their fixed costs. So including rent and utilities and business insurance. And we were providing up to $30,000 per month for each one of these businesses. And we coordinated that program with CANOR, which is our regional, federal regional economic development agency. And they uh, came out shortly after and announced the Northern Business Relief Fund. So we've dovetailed those together and using a single application to assess businesses for the programs so that we can direct them appropriately to which program is going to fit. And then, of course, maximize what they receive. So we chose to cover 100% of the funding to cover their costs. And the businesses are still a bit vulnerable because they have other costs in place. But we felt like this would be a great foundation for them. So funding for this program was delivered as of May 26th. I think we put out about about a million dollars. But we've put about $10 million aside. So we have a lot of companies that are still preparing their applications. They want to really understand what those particular fixed costs look like, and then make sure that they have a fully um, realized application. So we just extended the program as well. We did the first two months, and now we're going to extend it for two more months. So we're actually going to be delivering this program until about the end of July, July 23rd. And we're also going to continue to partner with the federal government on this. So for us, I mean, this has been something, I've talked to a lot of economic development ministers across the country. As far as we know, we're the only jurisdiction that has rolled it out. We know others have provided debt instruments, but I think we've heard across the country that that's a real challenge for companies to be continuing to try to get through this and then, and then try to uh, deal with that debt and deal with the maintenance of that. Our teams move really quick. I mean, this is public policy being built, programs being built in six days. I mean, this is morning, tonight, weekends, and you know, our programs, our economic development department has, with finance, has been extraordinary in building this out. So. What was the thinking behind covering the 100% of the fixed costs? You said that was unique in Canada, and I'm curious to know what the thinking process was. And frankly, are you getting a bit of pushback from some of your colleagues who aren't in the same position to be able to cover that cost? Well, out of, you know, when, the, when the situation occurred and we saw what was starting to transpire, we'd start to analyze what, where businesses were, what their costs were, and quickly knew if we didn't support this, we were going to see a domino effect play out. We knew that there was going to be investors that were in the commercial real estate space were going to start to feel that pressure. We didn't have an idea at that point about how long the restrictions would be in place. And so we started to forecast what this would look like from a program perspective. Our analysts and our economists did a very good job very quickly of giving us a sense of what a program like this would cost. We were in dialogue with the federal government throughout, you know, specifically, I would say late night phone calls to ministers and Minister Jolie was extremely helpful to try to partner up with us. So I think once we saw that we could bear the cost, you know, understanding everybody's under a lot of financial pressure, we felt it was the right thing to do. When it comes to my colleagues across the country, I've spent time speaking to whether it's Eastern Canada or ministers through Central Canada. And it's one thing for us to stand up and, and reflect on the fact that this has been something that's worked. But I understand the reality in a jurisdiction like Ontario. When you think about what are the fixed costs of one block downtown on Front Street, just for the businesses that are there in a real densified area, we were lucky because of a small population and the situation we were in that we could execute this program. I think other jurisdictions are sort of looking towards it. But we also understand the real reality of bigger provinces where they're probably thinking about what their economy is going to look like after this, 
which is probably going to be um, fairly different than what it was when this started just a few months ago. You've done a bunch of other things as it relates to the mining sector and infrastructure. Do you want to talk about some of those initiatives as well? Sure. A sick leave program we put in place really quickly. I mean, we're lucky in the sense that, again, we forecasted what the cost would that be. And that was really for people who wanted to go and get tested. And they might not have in their, from their employer a sick leave provision. That framework is now being looked upon by the federal government. And really, in some case, policy players across the country are using our program as a template. So that says a lot for our, the public servants that we get to work with. And our premier is one of the only premiers, the only premier in the country right now that's a finance minister and is also at first minister's table. So I know that Premier Silver brought forward this concept and now we're seeing it in other places. Business Advisory Council, very quickly out of the gates. Of course, we've seen that happen in a lot of different jurisdictions where we brought together expertise from a number of different sectors, really all the sectors that we have in our economy. And they've been key. And those have been very um, honest conversations about what we had to do. The advice that we've been given on a weekly basis, they, they meet and then they provide us with a new letter of direction on a weekly basis. That I think has been great. It, it, it helps me communicate to the cabinet about what is happening out there, the rest of my colleagues, and they get to see that firsthand from the advisory. And it also gives us some good direction and really helps us operationalize our programs. So I think those have been some key pieces. We, For people who don't know about the sick leave program, do you want to give a quick overview of what your program looks like? It was a rebate program and it allows Yukon workers and the self-employed, so entrepreneurs, gig economy as well, to apply for paid sick leave if they're sick or they have to require that 14 days of self-isolation. And then the, the program provides 10 days of paid sick leave, of course, taking into consideration sort of the work week. So in total, of course, it gives you the 14 days. And for us, I mean, of course, smaller population, we're a bit over 6 million is what we forecasted. To date, it's only been about a quarter of a million. So we've actually been lucky. And if you look back at where we are as a jurisdiction, of course, we've only had We've had 11 cases. We've done it really, I think everybody's worked hard to make sure we've kept our numbers low. And all those 11 people have, of course, recovered. But it's a program that it just, there were so many people that um, a lot of anxiety, depending if you're an entrepreneur, not being able to cover that. How do you deal with all those early costs? So that was probably one of our very first programs. We've also just announced our Yukon Essential Workers Income Program. That's, of course, working in hand in hand with the federal government and taking some of those funds where our essential workers that are on the front line have an opportunity to increase the way we've structured it is we max out at $20 per hour and we can bring any workers on the front lines from their existing hourly income up to $20. The difference for us is most of our healthcare workers work for the Yukon government. So we were in the same situation as other jurisdictions where we saw, you know, there was a real challenge at that time, I think, around the fact that People were working in private healthcare facilities were deciding to stay home. They were in fear for some of the challenges that were ongoing. And the federal government had worked with jurisdictions to increase that to make it more favorable. For us, we've really looked at people in retail, grocery stores, janitorial, a whole bunch of other areas, and we're giving the option to the employer. So the employer would then be given a bit of a supplement, I guess we would say, per employee to offset their overhead of implementing the program. 
And then again, it of course can give up to uh, $4 extra per hour. And we're, they can pick a 16 week period between March and October to run it. So I think that's also going to be something that's going to be well used. And of course, for all of us, I think we all have a different perspective about the people that we interact with when we go to a grocery store or a corner store now and how important it is. So I think that's something that's really appropriate and well-deserved for them. You've talked about grocery store workers, frontline workers, healthcare workers. It's a pretty expansive definition that you're using of what a frontline worker is yeah. in this program. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's very broad. I mean, with all of our programs, we've rolled them out in a spirit of trying to help, not limit. We haven't used our language or our policy or terms of reference to, to put up barriers. We are in a position right now where we're trying to use public policy to help people. And uh, that's our view. In the middle of all this, we just opened up Canada's first university in the North. For many that are online, probably know that Canada is the only country in the circumpolar North that didn't have a university, North of 60. We do now. And, and, and so through that, we also quickly rolled out something called the Pivot Program. And the Pivot Program was launched by UConn College at the time, now UConn University through their innovation and entrepreneurship area. And it's really just to help businesses adapt to physical distancing guidelines. Program participants also work with a support team made up of experts from uh, various professions to find new ways that they can operate. Examples, of course, of this would be retail operators learning to offer their products online, helping them to get a digital strategy in place, restaurants adopting and ordering and delivering services for the first time, if that's not something that they provided. And businesses, of course, also that can't operate under the usual um, situation because of physical distancing. So this program is just really helping people to adapt. We're pulling program from both the Yukon government and the federal government to that. So we've had a really amazing group of mentors that are helping people right now. And in some cases, people, of course, as we see across the country, are changing their complete business model and they're there to help in those ways as well. Thanks for running through all those programs. They're very interesting. And as you said, UConn has been ahead and sort of on its own in some of these programs. Thank you for talking through them. It's, it's really helpful to get that perspective. I do think it's important also to understand a little bit more around the UConn economy. So prior to the pandemic, we know that UConn was actually facing a labor shortage because your economy was growing and was on fire and you didn't have the kinds of people that you needed to actually get some of that work done. And UConn is often reliant on a lot of fly-in workers, and that adds a whole other layer to the complexity as it relates to the COVID-19 period. How, how is the territory planning on addressing the shortage? Just as you were asking me the question, I was just going back to refer to the uh, unemployment numbers from February. And I could still remember opening the email. It comes at the end of every month on a Friday morning and COVID had started. And I was opening up the email from our stats branch at usually at 630 in the morning, I got it. And we were, we're again, breaking a record for the lowest unemployment that the Yukon had seen. And again, we're for three years, we had the lowest unemployment in the country. So yeah, the, the economy, our GDP numbers were, were strong and we saw a real diversification or economy. So I think, first of all, that, that gave us a really good foundation to work from now. Of course, there's been so much disturbance, but I think we were in a good spot to, to start with. You know, I, when I th thinking about what's happening across the North when it comes to fly-in workers, it's been an interesting conversation because 
the other two territories, the Northwest Territories and Nunavut, in some ways that really rely on a, a substantial amount of fly-in uh, workforce, in some ways it's benefited them because they had local labor forces stay home because there was a real concern for transmission. And so they continued to come up with strategies to, to bring in flying workers. And in, because of that, they could keep their operations running. For us, it was a bit different. So out of our two big producing mines at this point, uh, Victoria Gold and Minto, so one's solely um, gold and the other one's gold and copper and, and gold, Victoria Gold's done an exceptional job of ensuring that we have a local workforce and the numbers are actually quite high. And you know we're probably in that 75 to percent range of, of a local workforce. But that, that also had some challenges because when you're trying to look at the logistics of this and to keep everybody safe and you have people coming from small communities that are going back to work and then they're meeting at the um, start of a shift period with Canadians uh, from across the country, it was something that we had to really watch. So I think for me, it's going to be, I have to watch to see how this is going to settle. So to take a look at what's going to transpire over the remainder of 2020, I think that's going to give us a real understanding of what capacity we have or not. We're always going to strive to ensure that the jobs in the resource sector are filled by Yukoners, you know, whether it be through the Center for Northern Innovation and Mining, which is part of Yukon University, our programs that we have in place. And that's part of what we tell all of the industry. So has it been a bit of a challenge? Sure. And we've had to work through, there's been additional costs for companies. Uh, Minto, our copper producing mine has really, it's an underground operation and they really, they really lean on that outside workforce. So we've had to do the quarantine in, in, the, in territory and it's been a challenge. But I think going forward, we're always going to look to, even from what we learned here, that doesn't mean we're not going to try to make sure that every job, first and foremost, is uh, supplied by people here. And that's cost effective for the industry. It helps to support our industry because people really know about the positive impacts when their quality of life increases because of the jobs they, uh, they get an opportunity to be part of. And so you're not worried about as things open up that those fly-in jobs will also fly out the salaries that would go out with them. Yeah, I mean, I think for that point, just as you said, to be fair, I mean, we're, you know, I was a signatory to the Canadian Free Trade Agreement. We're all working together. You know, we work with, very closely with our, our partners, um, provinces and territories. But in my role, I don't want to see any money flying, <laughs> flying, flying out in a person's pocket if I know that there's somebody here that can take that role on. We'll continue to work with companies to make sure that they can hire locals long term. That's, that's our strategy. And it was the strategy going into this mandate. That would be, I guess, the perspective probably from every jurisdiction. That's what they want to see these operations uh, supply local. So will we have more workers available to us as we see things settle from the pandemic? We might. People may pivot from the tourism operations that they've worked for and then be wanting to work in the resource sector. And if that's the case, that's good. Well, that means we're coming up with some solutions for those people. And in the interim, we'll try to keep as much money, of course, here as we can. You talk a little bit about the economic strength of the territory and the Yukon being particularly strong. We are going to be releasing our territorial outlook here at the conference board very shortly. And not a surprise, a small spoiler, but Yukon is one of the few in Canada still expected to grow this year, even with the pandemic. And we see that as largely based on the strength of the mining sector and the operations that are ramping up in the territory. 
Do you want to talk a little bit about the role that the mining sector has played in the incredible growth that the territory is seeing and the future of the territory? Yeah, the the sector's been, you know, I look at it in two parts. The sector's been an incredible uh, contributor to our economy. First of all, of course, there's the grassroots exploration portion of, of the industry. And we've seen some really significant spending over the last three years in that area. We've sort of had these anomalies over the last decade as we've watched in different jurisdictions, but certainly here, I know over the last number of years, we've seen some pretty big spend. It's a challenge right now as well in that field, because even before COVID, there's some real competition to get the dollars that were still out there to put into the exploration side of things. Massive contributor, our biggest private sector uh, contributor, of course, is the sector. And now we've watched Minto continue to produce, and that has a very significant impact on our GDP numbers. And now with Victoria Gold, and Victoria Gold is the Yukon's biggest gold mine that's ever been built. And now we see them coming into commercial production. So as we go through the year, you know, I've seen some projections of where we are from a GDP standpoint. I mean, last year, our 2018 was really good to us, 2019 positive, but not the same numbers. And, and part of that is when you have big CapEx in a jurisdiction where you have a half a billion spent over here and another couple hundred million projects in another area. All of those things really, of course, impact. What's been interesting about the Yukon is in times of pressure, as we're going through now, the fact that we are a jurisdiction for gold discovery and gold production has been good to us, of course, because if you want to go through what's the Dow look like today, what's the venture look, what's the TSX look like today, where are we at on interest rates, are they staying the same? What we can see is there's been one figure that's continuous to be pretty bullish. And that's been the price of gold. For us, I think it's always been that area that in these times of crisis, it's helped us. We still have acquisitions that are happening or option agreements. So we still see big players coming into the Yukon. My last couple of weeks are on the phone ensuring that expiration programs will continue, making sure that people know that there is a pathway to do the work they want to do. And also to the fact that we are still open for business. We just want to make sure you're respecting our communities and respecting the rules that we have in place. There's another part of the economic story of the Yukon that is less optimistic in the pandemic, and that's the tourism sector. Yeah. And tourism is another big part of the economy. What's happening there and what are the plans if these travel bans continue for significantly longer? Well, I'll give you maybe a little bit of a sense of what is happening in the sector, what we're trying to do. So the Minister of Tourism, Minister Dendies, who I work with very closely, first of all, their focus has been to make sure that they're promoting tourism inside the Yukon. And so the way we look at it, like every province and territory, a lot of individuals who normally may spend time going to see grandma and grandpa, traveling across the country or doing that trip they've always wanted to do, they can't do that this year. Of course, we want them to spend that money at home. I think as you've touched on before, you've had a trip here. It's a pretty exceptional place. It's beautiful. I had the pleasure of going to Whitehorse probably 10 years ago. And I had lived in Vancouver. And to me, Whitehorse rivals Vancouver in terms of beauty. It's got all of those elements, the, the river, the, the mountains, and all of that land uh, without a fog, <laughs> at least when I was there. So it was, it was, it's a gorgeous place. It's really 
It really is. And so it's not surprising that the tourism is such an important part of the economy. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, cleanest air in the world. Uh, I don't know what time sunset is tonight, probably 1130 tonight. Beautiful days right now and still warm. And Yukoners know that. We want them to, to spend some more time this summer in their own backyard. So that's going to be one thing that we see. We're The tourism uh, department has, um, now they're actually providing an increase in our tourism cooperative marketing fund. They're now providing money to our local operators to make sure that they can market at a local level. And then as we see some of the barriers that are in place or some of the restrictions that are in place, as they start to be removed, we'll have a, a regional play on this. We're getting very close to getting to a place where we're going to have some more flexibility in movement between British Columbia and the Yukon. As we've seen announced over the last number of days, there's going to be some pretty extensive spending on a Canadian marketing strategy by the federal government. Our departments, of course, will continue to work to try to support in those ways. I know that we, I think it's about a million dollars right now that the ministers is rolling out to make sure that our companies can do that work. And also, people are trying to pivot. And for some that are really entrepreneurial, that movement happens with um, much more comfort. Other individuals who might have been doing the same type of business for a long time, it's a challenge. But what we're seeing, for instance, is our float plane operators are now coming up with new product development. We know there's going to be less uh, tourism traffic from outside off the Yukon this summer. So it's putting packages together where they're flying people up to the top of um, mountains to pristine lakes to go fishing for two days where you know you might never get a chance to go to. So those are the things that, of course, we're seeing people do. A lot of people don't know. We have a direct flight from Frankfurt to Whitehorse throughout the summer. Of course, that is something we're not going to be able to realize this summer. Again, so a lot of European travel, that's going to be limited. The federal government, again, has been pretty good about making sure that they understand where we are. Our local regional development agencies now come out and publicly stated that they're going to continue to support our tourism sector to the end of the physical, so into March of uh, 2021. We're going to see some real impact. People that can pivot quickly are going to come up with some good concepts. We are definitely going to have some players that are severely impacted, which we're going to see across the country. And in the interim, we're just going to try to do with our departments and our local spend as much as we can to see them um, sustain themselves through an extremely difficult time. Well, you talk about the entrepreneurship side, and I have to say one of the things that I found when I was up in Whitehorse is everyone I talked to had what we now call a side hustle. They had this entrepreneurial spirit. You've been recognized and one of your many titles is associated with the entrepreneurship side. Is there something special about Yukon that drives this entrepreneurship? I think people that that either um, have been here for generations or individuals that have made a decision to move to the Yukon always have a pretty adventurous spirit. So I think that plays a um, a key role. A number of years ago, when we started the beginning of this mandate, like most, everybody wants to diversify their economy. Working with my deputy minister of the day, who's still with me, fantastic entrepreneur himself, and now in, a, in his role, Justin Furby. And we had worked together previously uh, on a number of different initiatives. So we're pretty excited about working together to try to move policy for the territory around making sure that the entrepreneurs had a real opportunity to blossom. 
And then last year, the independent business, a Canadian Federation of Independent Business named Whitehorse the top entrepreneurial city in the country. And so it seemed to us that some of the work was starting to pay off. First thing that, um, that had happened here is that we built something called the Northlight Innovation Centre. So very quickly, we built a 20,000 square foot centre for innovation with hot desks, different tinkering spaces, construction. you construct another organisation locally that works with a make it space or a maker space. All of it came together to build this ecosystem that's um, really been thriving. So what we've seen since then is within a very short period of time, the entire building, all the spaces, whether they be the desks or some of the larger spaces were all filled. What we've seen now is a real blossoming of entrepreneurs. So we're seeing the people that, as you said, that have the side hustle. Maybe in the start, they were in a position where uh, they had a full-time job in another private sector or in government. And now they're starting to make that decision to sort of leave that and, and really follow their dreams. One of our local companies, Proof, was noted this year. They've done an amazing job in some of their work and have won a number of awards across the country. And now they're working with a number of governments across the country to put in place their platform, which really tries to make government more, more efficient. And some of the other things, maybe just to touch on one of the other really exciting initiatives that we, that we took on, there's a, a company that's based in Ontario called Panache Ventures. And it's made up of a team of venture capitalists that have a really strong track record across Canada. We teamed up with a number of First Nations in the Yukon some of them very remote. And really, I don't know if this has ever happened in Canada, but we provided seed money to the First Nations development corporations, and then they in turn invested into the fund. So what ended up happening is you have pension funds from Quebec, Crown Corporation funding from Alberta, really well-known international funds from well-known entrepreneurial families all coming together to put this early stage digital fund together. And now you also have um, a series of Yukon First Nations that have come together and have a seat on the national board. So you've got national banks, a real significant capacity at that table. And to see our First Nations at that table investing in a number of digital strategies, I think the total is, you're going to look at, it's about about 100, I think, companies in all, the funds looking to to invest in. And part of our terms of reference and agreement we put in was that we would then host, it was going to be this year, it'll be next year, we'll host about 60 or 75 of those CEOs. They'll come to the Yukon, we'll help again, cross-pollinate those ideas and continue to drive that entrepreneurial spirit. I think it's part of our, definitely part of our fabric. What an interesting scenario when you build this center with a number of groups and then go back and look and it, it truly was a build it and they will come. I mean, the amount of people that have come to the table from across the world, whether it be scientists from the Middle East or from, from Europe, people with patents under their names, but people who've probably come to the Yukon for the quality of life, but still have that spirit. So now we have them working with our local youth and our university. And yeah, it's starting to be a pretty exciting place. And you know, at the end of the day, the reason that people love to be here when they on the entrepreneurial side is not just because of the opportunity, but it's also because at 11 o'clock at night, you can go mountain biking on the best single trail arguably in the world. That's what people want to do. And I know last night I was out paddling at 10 o'clock at night and you can do that too. And then you can get up the next day and be in a great environment to work on your, uh, on your projects or your startup. You talk a little bit about the First Nations and the Indigenous experience through this and the Indigenous uh, entrepreneurship side. We heard from Andre Picard 
that one of the things when he observed the uh, effect of the pandemic on the Indigenous populations is that there were a lot of learnings that happened in those populations from the H1N1. And as you said at the beginning, they went hard and they reacted quickly to this current crisis. How are Indigenous peoples in Yukon faring? And do you think, as it relates to the economic development and that reconciliation agenda, is the pandemic going to be a help or a hindrance for that agenda? Well, a real focus for our government has been to make sure that there's a true commitment to reconciliation. We have two cabinet ministers that come from First Nations communities in the Yukon. Uh, Minister Frost, who's our Minister of Environment and Health and Housing, and Minister Dendies, who I touched on before. Strong Indigenous women leaders before, and very well known at a regional, national level before they were ever part of the cabinet and the team I get to work with. Previously, a number of people that are within our cabinet also worked with First Nations government. So I think everybody felt that it was such an important thing to focus on. The Premier and the Grand Chief of the Yukon, Peter Johnson, focused on something called the Yukon Forum. And the Yukon Forum was uh, a process between governments. It really had been, um, didn't quite have the emphasis over the last number of years that it should have. And then once we were elected in 2016, we started to work with our First Nation government. So that is a, that is a, a table where on a quarterly basis, all First Nation chiefs in the Yukon are at the table with cabinet and the premier and the grand chief. And f- from that, we have a series of subcommittees I think almost a dozen now that focus on different areas. So all the technical teams are working that represent First Nations as well as the public sector, and they're working together to look at solutions and collaboration. And so that's real work that's being done. It's something we think is pretty unique. The other thing that happened early on in our mandate was every province and territory flies to Ottawa and spends time in Ottawa meeting with cabinet ministers and talking about their priorities. Something that our team felt very strongly about, but our premier showed the leadership on, was that we would bring our Indigenous leaders to those meetings. So true partnership, not we're going to go to Ottawa and we'll let you know how it went. But no, we are partners. We will stand together. You will be in those meetings, whether it's meetings with Bill Marneau or it's meetings with, you name that, you know, Minister Sohi at the time or whoever it may be. So it was about making sure that people knew the priorities that we had were the priorities that First Nations governments had, and we have them together, and we're here um, as partners. Again, that's something that's very unique, I think, in the country. You don't see that a lot from other jurisdictions, but it's something we believe in. So I think, and we've had a good foundation again over the last number of years to be able to move through the crisis. Our First Nation governments, many of them have made the right decisions when it comes to investment in the economy. In some cases, there's passive investment that has occurred. In other cases, like we've talked about here, it's passive in the sense that you know they're investing, but they're sitting on a board and looking over a fund. But there's also a lot of actively owned companies. So the same way that if you look at where the impacts on our economy are, on the tourism side, many of our hotels are owned by companies that have, where First Nations have strong equity positions in those companies. They're looking at their investment portfolios, and I think probably reflecting on the fact that they're going to have some impact and they're going to have to figure out how to recover from that in their partnerships with their companies. In other areas where 
you know, you touched on earlier, and I probably should have expanded a bit more on on the on the infrastructure side, where we still have. I mean, we're rolling out this year about a three hundred and sixty million dollar capital budget. The construction companies and service sector companies that are owned by First Nations or supply service supply companies, they're going to see probably a very strong year, even if it started slow, because all of that work is now out the doors and it's beginning to be underway. Will it hurt reconciliation in the Yukon between government or just individuals? I don't think so. I think, you know, this is something we're in constant contact with our First Nations leaders. We understand how they've approached this. And yeah, they have, in many communities, got locked down very quickly. It's worked. They've kept their people healthy. They were quick. Many of First Nations were extremely quick to build their own programs and provide funding. And, and they were really progressive in, in how they built that policy. I think we're all collectively in a pretty good space right now. I would say that First Nations are feeling there's still a lot of anxiety around making sure that the elders in those communities are safe and healthy because they're such a key and a cornerstone of the social fabric. Again, I'll say that's what's being shared with me. I'd never speak on behalf of First Nations, but I would say that's what's being reflected to me in my conversations. You've given us so many examples of how the government and the people of the Yukon are responding to this pandemic. Sounds like there's lots of reasons for you to be optimistic around the economic recovery, despite all of the challenges that you're facing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I am. Any last thoughts on where you hope the Yukon emerges out of this? Yeah, I I would say, Michael, like I'm optimistic because I see larger portions of our economy, they're already starting to rebound. And and I feel good about what's happening on the resource side. I feel good about looking even at some of the statistical information on home sales and and building permits. All of those things are bouncing back really quickly. So it, it seems to see some of the things that were happening before March are now we're moving through them. I'm extremely optimistic and I'll and I'll put in a shameless plug to say what we've seen here is the assets that people hold have continued to hold value. I think it's still going to be a place where what I'm hearing is that investors that are at least in Western Canada, maybe it's, you know, I think we'll see British Columbia stay strong, but through the prairies, people are quickly looking to the Yukon going, you know, where, where should I put my money now? Am I going to leave my money in areas where there's so much strain and pressures because of a number of different variables or where can I see growth? And I think that was something, again, that brought me optimism when I knew that major well-known investors across Canada were quickly looking to start to invest in the Yukon post-COVID because they knew that it was still a place that they could find value. When you look at all those different things, yeah, I feel we have a lot of work to do. Days are um, hard and long right now, but I think coming out on the other end, we're going to be um, near the front of the pack, if not there at the front, and we're going to be extremely resilient coming out of this. Ranj, I think that's a great place for us to end. Thank you so much for being part of the podcast and for sharing your view on where UConn is and where it's going in the future. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to Bright Future by the Conference Board of Canada. This series is produced by Jen DeHamel. Nancy Nguyen is our audio engineer and Andy Joy is our writer. Ideas were contributed by Rob Collins and Aaron Brophy. I'm Michael Bassett, and I'm the host and executive producer for this series. The views expressed by our guests are theirs alone and do not reflect the conference board's opinion. For more podcasts, videos, commentary, and ideas, visit conferenceboard.ca.